Hello, everyone, and welcome to Undercover Influencer. Listen, I'm incredibly excited about this episode because these two guys shaped so much of who I am long before I ever knew them. As a child who dreamed of working in television, I often watched the credits on television shows and did research on the people who created them. John Schaffner and Joe Stewart are names that came up often. If you've watched television in the past 30 years, odds are you've watched worlds that they've created. Friends, Big Bang Theory, Dharma and Greg, Two and a Half Men, The Emmys, Conan O'Brien, Rachel Ray, Star Search. These names only scratch the surface of the mark that they've made in the landscape of American television. I've come to know John and Joe as two of the most gracious contributors to the entertainment industry who have been willing to share the lessons that they've learned throughout their career with anyone who has a desire to learn. It was an honor to chat with them about their early days in theater, how they ended up in Los Angeles, and what they believe the future of television looks like. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with John Schaffner and Joe Stewart. John and Joe, thank you so much for being with me today on this podcast. I am beyond thrilled to talk to you two. You guys, your work in television is what convinced me that I needed to go to Carnegie Mellon and get a theater degree for television. And um, I grew up watching your work. I grew up um, just really being impressed with the stuff that you guys did. And I'm so excited to get to speak with you today. Well, we don't want to take the total blame for you going to Carnegie Mellon. No. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, but that's a pretty, guys, it's a pretty wonderful place. It is, it is a great place. It's heaven on earth, for sure. Mm-hmm. You guys have been fixtures in American film and television for years now. Can you tell me a little bit about how you two met and how you landed in the design and production space? Well, I'll go first. I, you know, I got bit by the theater bug as a child, really. I had some on my mother's family, there was kind of a history of a little bit of show business, even though we grew up in Montana. Uh, And so I started designing sets when I was in grade school and I hit the boards, as they say, running on, uh, as a freshman in high school Mm -hmm. and continued, you know, through high school, acting, designing, building, everything, and then left for college and said, oh, well, I'm obviously can't go into theater. You can't make a living. (laughs) And after one semester, I came home for Christmas and told my parents, well, sorry about that, but I'm going into the theater business. So, you know, I finished my bachelor's at the University of Montana and then went to Carnegie Mellon in the fall of 74 and immediately met Joe. So Joe, why don't you catch you up to that point? Okay, me up to, I, I was raised in Southwestern Louisiana in Lafayette, Louisiana. My father and my mother and father were in the oil business. And so I didn't have exactly the same profile as John. I wasn't a person who worked in the theater when I was in high school. I just enjoyed going to the theater, but what I, what I knew was that I liked to be in the world of design. So I studied architecture and art history and ended up transferring to, to Carnegie. And then I say the great thing happened that, well, besides meeting John, we met our tribe of people that mm-hmm. we have come to know for our entire lives, uh, professionally and uh, personal friends. And so it all worked out just great. 
And then, of course, the business was wonderful too. We loved the, the work. So that was that. So what happened was our, the professor, Bill Matthews at school, said uh, in class one day, and I, this must have been maybe October or something, said, uh, does anybody have any experience with computers? So the only people that raised their hands were John and Joe, because each of us had had a, a smattering of computer classes uh, in the early, early 70s. And so the teacher said, would you like to participate in this project? Um, the university has a grant uh, to see if they can adapt some of the technology that they're developing in the computer program for architecture to design in entertainment and theater. So we said, okay. So we ended up going to a computer room, uh, which was very remedial, really. Uh, 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 we had moved into the keyboard land. It wasn't punch cards, thank goodness, but it was huge quantities of um, pages of, of formula that we would type in and you miss one period or one single thing and you know start over or try to figure out the mistake. Mm -hmm. So Joe and I spent a good, you know, about every like three times a week, two or three hours working on this project. And in the end, we were able to um, sort of design a theater in the round set. And what happened with this, with it was of course, we couldn't, we, there weren't plotters. So the only way that we could record it was with a 35 millimeter camera taking a picture of the screen. Mm -hmm. And we, in, we would do this over and over again to try to get, you know, a little thing going. But we believed that there was a, you know, a future to this. And uh, we took our little, we made a little exhibit of this and took it to the USITT convention. And we met, Ming Cho Lee, which was very exciting. And we met Joseph Svoboda at both of them at this were, were there. And they said that to, it was all very nice and interesting what we had done, but nobody would ever use a computer in entertainment. And that was that. And thanks and Especially in the much. theater to design. Never, ever, ever. And so, so we wrapped we, up our little, our little you know, science fair display and uh -huh. all the little pictures and all the formulas and all the little examples and things that we had printed out. Oh, basically, we could only print, you know, eight by 10 black and white pictures that mm -hmm. we had taken of the screen. And we took it back and put it away. And said, so when Joe graduated, I went to the Seattle rep for a season and then Joe graduated. And I called Joe from Seattle and said, uh uh, Seattle isn't big enough for both of us. <laughs> so uh, the only place big enough was New York. So we ended up in, in New York City. And, yeah. uh, and that was in the, the, the spring, the early summer of 1977. We, we, start, we moved to New York just about the same time Studio 54 opened and we moved out about the same time Studio 54 went out of business. <laughs> but we only went a couple of times, so you know, we couldn't now, afford that. What took you from New York to Los Angeles? Well, well uh, it I'll tell you, it, it was an interesting time. We were, I had been working with uh, uh, opera designers uh, and what had happened transpired was that uh, John Ryan Stevens, a wonderful friend of ours and a designer was working on what I guess you would call movies of the week for public television, but they were 
film projects with cameras, with single camera, and they sort of were, you know, a storytelling uh, narrative thing. We did uh, something called Charlie Smith and the Fritter Tree and the Sorrows of Gin and a couple of other projects. Anyway, what we got interested in working with cameras because it was something different and we'd been, we'd been working in the theater for a long time. So we decided that maybe now was the right time to go take a look on the West Coast and look and see what uh, camera work and commercial entertainment was about. Most of the stuff that was being done, now not all, but most of it was uh, with cameras was in installations like news programs and things like that. It wasn't as, it, it didn't seem as like as much product as there was on the West Coast. So it was like, let's just go to the West Coast and see what we see. There's also a sense in the theater business, I, you know, I had my big break and got to design uh, two shows for Joe Papp in Central Park, All's Well That Ends Well and Taming of the Shrew with Meryl Streep and Raul Julia. Yeah. And I was working with a uh, director designer, Wilfred Leach, um, but I, I was the, they called, I was the associate designer on that. And I assumed that Broadway would be at my feet, but it doesn't work that way. You just keep working. And, and as my friend John Lee Beatty told me when I worked for him, you have to do seven off-off-Broadway shows to get one off-Broadway show and one seven off-Broadway shows to get one that might move to Broadway or regional. So, you know, we were looking at that and then you can go into New York and you can count the number of Broadway theaters. Right. And the, the old guard was not going anywhere. It just seemed like, well, we could do continue to work in regional theater, which I'd started to do. But Joe had gotten his foot in the door with this designer, John. And so we decided, why don't we just check it out? So Joe said, you wanna do that? And I said, okay. So we bought a 1965 Thunderbird convertible in Brooklyn and drove it to Hollywood. Same color, same car as Thelma and Louise, but a long time before they did. What an incredible <laughs> story. Now you guys, designed primarily for television now. You still do some theater work, but you're primarily in television and your work covers a wide spectrum. You've done the Emmys, you've done the ESPYs, you did the Victoria's Secret fashion show at one point. You've done talk shows like Ellen, and then you've done television shows like Friends and Big Bang Theory. Can you explain your design process? Where do you guys start and what are the differences in designing award shows, talk shows, and sitcoms? How do you do all three and what is this? What's the difference in the starting points between all three? Well, let me interject quickly. Uh, the one thing that makes all of these things similar is that it's multi-camera design mm -hmm. as opposed to single camera. And, you know, it's hard when you use the word television, it doesn't immediately imply multi-camera or single camera. So and that's really where the whole industry breaks into two because people who, uh, who focus on single camera end up in features and an episodic kind of work. And the people in multi tend towards this, you know, sitcom, game show, talk show, award show, live event kind of work. So the one thing that all of these things have in common is the live audience. Mm. And all, what all of these things have in common is there's a showtime and the yes. show goes on. So there's a great relationship to the theater. So right. the inspiration really starts with 
with, okay, what is the project? And, you know, uh, what, what does an award show want? What, what is the point of it? The sitcom, what is it? Well, the sitcom is pretty easy because there's a script and it usually tells you who the people are and usually tells you their socioeconomic status in the world and where they live pretty much. Sometimes conceptually, fuzzy, I was gonna say, conceptually, when we start a project, what happens is usually somebody who's hired us has an idea of the direction that they want to go in. And so part of it is- Or not. Or not, but a lot of times it's just having a conversation with the, with, with the producer, whoever is carrying the vision, the producer, the star, and saying to, and listening to what it is that they're trying to get out of this project and how they'd like for it to be presented. And so we spend a lot of time, I think, listening in the very beginning to what, what's going on. And then we leave and we go come back usually with sketches or some kind of type of visualization that begins to address the needs of the, of the show. So it's, well, you know. If it's, if it's driven by a host character like Ellen or Conan or the doctors or Rachel Ray or whoever, you know, you look at those people and you go, okay, what, what is their character? What is, what, what, what is their taste? What do they like? What kind of surround environment would appeal to them that they would be comfortable in? You know, an award show, becomes a lot about, especially if it's a classic award show like the Emmys, you, you're going like, okay, we need to make this look important. That's the number one thing. Make it look like an important thing. But we've well, always tried to add a little subtext to it. Like one year we did everything behind frosted glass with screens that would move towards the glass so that it would be out of focus and come into focus. It was kind of a clumsy way because you could do it with a knob. But it also was a physical way of us talking about bringing the season into focus, you know? Yeah. So we would always kind of layer something like that into it. You know, when Joe's doing a beauty pageant, you know, Miss Universe for however many years. Well, that's, sometimes those shows are like, you know, there's a requirement in that, in that case that we are in another country. And a lot of times people don't even know very much about, sometimes they don't even know we, we do a, a locator so people would know where it was. When we were in Vietnam, we found out that there were people that didn't know where Vietnam was in the world. So it was like, oh my God, I think we better have a, an indicator map to explain where the country is. But There's then so you'd have the producer, the producer telling you, I want it to be hip and cool and look like a fashion show. <laughs> yes, sometimes there's that. It's a you never know. But it's, it's always listening to what it is that they want us to do and then trying to accomplish it. I mean, because sometimes you're more successful than other times, of course. Then there's the world of, of music, you know, the American Music Awards or New Year's Rock and Eve or back in the day, you know, Star Search and, and music shows that I did over the years. Uh, you know, it's really putting together an overall package of the theater. And then in, in days gone by, you would listen to the record, talk to the producer, pitch some ideas about what you thought it should look like for Lady Gaga to sing the song. And now it's, it's shifted because the business has gotten so big. Everybody wants to create their own like music video inside of the award show. 
What happened was, uh, you know, like just an example is that a lot of times once a song is released, it is, it is, it's the idea is that you're going to see it all the time in a similar, in a similar way. So that a lot of be real would be used on the LED screens. LED screens have become very useful in the sense that you can control the backgrounds of the scenery. So say that, you know, it's a country road kind of country song or something. A lot of times there's the music video and then in the presentation in a, in a television show, parts of the music video appear so that there's a familiarity with the performer and the song as it goes through its course, you know, a big And then somebody from the, from, from the performer's uh, entourage says, oh, I know, it'd be cool if we made a country road on stage and brought in dirt. <laughs> That happens sometimes too. You never know, but I mean, whatever it is, you know, sometimes there's a similarity as opposed to once upon a time, these shows kind of functioned like variety shows where there was a, a, a dancing chorus, if you will, of dancers and things. And that there was just the presentation of the performer in, a, in, an, in some kind of environment. But that has kind of shifted to more of a, I would say sort of a, probably for the good too, like a more of a spectacular idea that when you see three or four or five different performers, they're in like enormously different environments, that it isn't just a prop here and a lighting condition. It's really significantly changed so that it really wows the, uh, the live audience to see. So when you also, it's kind of wonderful if you're in attendance to see the stage transformed that way because yeah. everything changes and you know it ex it also expands and contracts a lot into large environments for the performance yeah it gets pretty crazy i mean you've seen it you know certainly on the american music awards and on the grammys in particular and now of course the 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 uh, uh the other music award shows there's so many now <laughs> uh, you just can't even Imagine how much money gets spent on each individual act. And usually the production company, say it was Dick Clark or whatever, they will put in, they'll tell the, the act, we, we got, we'll give you this much, 50,000, 100,000, whatever. And then the act's label usually pumps up, you know, well, we'll put in 100. And then, and then the ideas start rolling like the dirt road. And then we have to do the dirt road, but then we have to explain to everybody that we can't clean it up in time for the next act. So we can't do the dirt road, but mm -hmm. we could maybe project a dirt road and we'll bring in some old fences to make it look like the country road, you know? So there's that kind of play that goes on for each individual performance. That's so cool. And I wanna shift a little bit to your work in sitcom because you guys spent a lot of years doing sitcom work. When you, does start to start the design for the set of a pilot. A lot of times all you have is a couple of scripts. Um, how do you design a set that will age well with the characters of the show? Well, I think, you know, uh, of course our sitcom career kind of came later, uh, in, in, you know, uh, because we'd already had established in the music business and certainly with you know, David Copperfield that we had done, I think 11 of his TV specials. Mm -hmm. But when you get a sitcom, basically you get a script and you're alone and you read it and you start imagining, okay, where, who are these people? Where do they live? 
it's usually pretty clear, you know, what their socioeconomic status is. Your experience with the network tells you, well, they want it to look a little better than what people could really afford, potentially. They don't like down. Aspirational. <laughs> aspirational. Um, so, you know, you, I, I, we just start out right away with a bunch of pictures. Uh, I used to bring in books. Now, of course, it's easier between the internet and books to make copies and scan stuff and make up a big And magazines and contemporary, you know, contemporary interiors and things that are people what, are familiar with. Yeah, and if that's what this, if they if it's supposed to be a bar in an old factory, then you bring in pictures of old factories, and you bring in pictures of bars that have been put in factories. Um, but I mean, you kind of go around on that. But and as soon as it, you kind of get in tune with the the general tone, then 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 you have to get really seriously into geography and space. But mm -hmm. um, I was going to say is that there's an important part. There's an important aspect to also in variety too is space that the how long it takes to cross the stage becomes important you know in a variety in, a, in an award show when somebody makes an entrance how long because we're always working with time on television and so a, a long entrance might not be although it's terrific for the look it might not be so good for the time and so you always want to make sure that you can cut to where you can get to the mark where talking happens, where the medium close-up happens. Which, which is kind of like in the comedy business, you don't want the front door to the back door being a 20-minute walk. Right. Um, right. And, you know, I've done the shows where they want the big, lavish living room set, but they don't really want it to be that wide. We did, we did a really big kind of living room, family room set for Dad Stop Embarrassing Me, this new Netflix series with Jamie Foxx, because it's supposed to be really rich. But then you go down on the soundstage and you only have this much space. So you might make the front this big and then you try to make the room go deeper, you know, so that you get the effect of, of richness. The other thing is that sometimes the, the camera is like looking at something with one eye. So it, your perception of scale sometimes is a little, people always come on stage and they say, oh, it's so much smaller than it looks on TV, you know? And, and so when people would come to the friend set, they go, oh, it's so much smaller than it looks, you know, on television. But my argument was always, well, they got a nice apartment for that price because it was, you know, a walk up and you get cheaper by the floor. So if you're on the fifth or sixth floor, six is the max, I think we ended up on the fourth or fifth floor on Friends because the joke of panting like barefoot in the park every time they came through the door, you know, fell flat pretty fast. I mean, okay, <laughs> we got that joke. Um, but, you know, designing space, you know, Friends was particularly fun because it was sort of our experience of living in New York, in a walk-up apartment, you know, and knowing that this many characters had to work together all the time and relied on a lot of our theatrical training for farce and comedy. So we designed a set that had doors. You know, the, the doors for each of the bedroom, the doors for the bathroom, the upstage door that we never figured out what it was until it became Monica's closet, <laughs> and then the front door, and then the window that opened so they could go out on the, on the, you know. Because uh, always think about doors. doors. You know? <laughs> about no. entrances and doors and geography. Blam. Hey. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I've heard a story about the design process for Friends where you really wanted Monica's apartment to be purple, but it made the producers a little anxious. I mean, looking back, it was obviously the right choice. Her purple apartment is has become one of the most iconic rooms on television, right? How did so you guys ultimately convince the team that purple was the right color? Well, it was really more, it was such a quick thing. Uh, Kevin Bright looked at us and said, there's one thing, as we started, we moved from geography into color. He said, I really don't want a plain off-white landlord looking apartment. Just, just to have fun with it. What, what, think about some color. And I just, it just popped into my head. I said, what about purple? And that's when Kevin said, well, okay, maybe, you know, Marta, well, David, you know. There's also a thing about one of the best color on television for skin tone for separation is blue. But you, because of nightly news is always blue, everything. So, and if you go around the color wheel, that lavender purple is related to the other ways to go teal. This one is to go purple. The idea we knew we were going to have a lot of skin tones and a lot of hair color in the show. So we wanted to do something that complemented the way people looked so that it would be easy lighting wise and easy visually to have a lot of different, uh, I don't know, different colors, different values of skin in that set. So that was part but, of it. But, but the point being, we, we uh, Kevin said, all right, go ahead and paint it the color you'd like to paint it and we'll call us to stage when, when it's done. <laughs> so uh, the painters worked, you know, for a couple of days and and Kevin, Marta, and David were really good about staying away. And I, we called them up and said, okay, come down and take a look. Let's see what you think. And they came down to the stage and they looked at it and they, they just, they fell in love with it right away. There was really very little discussion. You know, and I had been anxious that they would walk down and say, well, it's too much. What, you know, da, 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 what, what else could we do? But instead they just came in and said, wow, this looks, this is great. And I think I, I always credit, you know, the decorator, Greg Grande did a terrific job mm -hmm. of, you know, bringing in a lot of nice colors that would accent with it. And of course, because the purple was so strong, he ended up working with a lot of neutrals in the amber tones and woods, like the coffee table and then oatmeal colored sofa. And he brought in the gold and the curtains, you know, and we had painted the kitchen more colors. There was some yellow and a little bit of green in there, turquoise to kind of color that up a little bit. Um, and then we had your classic, you know, wooden uh, parquet floor, which was even common in tenements in New York. Mm -hmm. in, so that-, that in, the day, in the day, that was considered a very, very colorful set because it was coming off of this trend of scenery being sort of a neutral so that the performers could exist in front of it and uh, wear anything. And as it turned out, it wasn't, it was, color wasn't that limiting. And also there was a, an idea that they wanted, we wanted to have color so that when you were channel surfing, you could instantly see when you hit friends because of the color palette. Mm -hmm. So it, it had a very strong color palette throughout the whole show. Yeah, like, and the, like the coffee house had a lot of, was rust and oranges and those colors with the, some of the blacks and golds and, some more, but, but lots nowadays, green. I mean, it's it's really common to have color. But back, you have to kind of turn back the hands of time. Back then, that was a one of the identifications of the show. Yeah.
27, almost 28 years ago. Now, speaking oh of that, HBO recently did a reunion of Friends. What was it like to see that set come back to life? And what was it like to put all the pieces back together and see it all oh. again? Well, it was, it was really quite remarkable because again, that was sort of the beginning of our multi-camera sitcom design career. And to have it all come in at the end of our career or seemed like the right, it just seemed so right. And fortunately, Warner Brothers had paid attention and had basically stored the set in archives. So we were able to access most of it. We had to rebuild the street. And of course it came in looking like they'd tied a rope around it and dragged it from Simi Valley to you know, uh, Burbank. Uh, so there was a great deal of restoration involved. They had also saved a good portion of the dressings, but some things had just vanished. And so we did a combination of, of reproduction or substitution when we were said like, well, you know, in season one, they didn't have that kind of chair in the living room. So in season nine, I mean, Ben Winston, the executive producer really wanted to make it look like the, the last year of the show. But because there had been always a little bit, there had been changes from episode to episode, people weren't quite as aware sometimes of those things, but we did have to, um, uh, Greg did, we couldn't find the carpet for the living room. So went through pictures and found a graphics person who recreated the design to their best of their ability. And now the technology allowed us to just print it on a piece of neutral carpet. Where back 27 years ago, that wasn't an option. Yeah. So it was quite remarkable to do that. And of course, COVID, they wanted to do a large segment of the reunion special on stage with a live studio audience. But COVID restricted the number of people so badly that Ben finally came to us and said, we have to do it outside. So we ended up building our version of a, of a theater in Central Park in, in the middle of uh, Warner Brothers and built a big, you know, semi-circular seating and a stage. And they had moved the fountain that had been used in the um, title sequence from the the Warner Brother Ranch lot, which was a few blocks away, and they had actually moved it over and installed it on the main lot. So we were able to incorporate that into the background and then some of the New York uh, buildings in the background. So that that came together and I think enriched the show actually in a way because it, it really, uh, it, it just felt like New York from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so cool. I'll ask you guys another question. As I was graduating from college in the early 2000s, television was making a massive shift from primetime being primarily sitcoms to more reality television and game shows in primetime. It seems like we're in the middle of another shift right now with companies like Netflix, HBO, and Apple spending more money than ever on storytelling. What do you think the future of storytelling and television is gonna look like? The future of storytelling is just going to continue to become the mainstay of, of programming. I mean, that's what the audience really wants to watch. Um, yes, they enjoy the reality shows and things, but, but episodic uh, and comedy storytelling is going to be a big part of it. I, I, it just, just transitions around. I mean, when we first entered the business in the early 80s, the expansion of television was into first run syndication. 
and uh, all the various channels. And then that expanded into cable. And now, of course, it's expanding into streaming and everybody's getting involved. So it just continues to grow. And, you know, it's, it's, it actually has a great much, uh, I don't know, it's gotten to be very much like the theater business where everybody's drilling a hole, hoping to find oil somewhere. Uh, and when you get a gold somewhere, hit oil or find that gold that supports everything else, you know? So yeah. it just takes a, a hit here and a hit there uh, to keep the audience coming back. And, and I think that's what the streamers like. Well, that, like, is, in streaming up. too, you know, it, you, sometimes you get, you get a streaming platform and you, all you need is like two good projects to draw in that audience and get your, your monthly subscription in. So it's a, there's a good reason to spend a lot of money, you know, and uh, because it's, you, you can get a lot of viewers and then you can mine those viewers and educate them, you know, and see what your viewer is just like, just like your theater audience, you know, like a, like a regional opera training an audience to come back and come back and come back that you know that's what what could be happening and boy is it good business for designers let me tell you i think everybody is working right now that we know uh in all of the of course not in hollywood they're working in atlanta and other places but that's another story but the uh the way that it is it's been very very good for the business i think as you guys reach the end of your career in design and you see this young crop of new storytellers coming up, what would you tell someone who's in maybe high school or junior high who has a passion for theater or film who wants to get into the industry? What would you tell them that path is going to look like from here going forward? Oh, I can say it. Go for it. You know, go for whatever you want to do. And, you know, study hard, learn how to do everything learn how to draw, learn how to draft, learn how to computer and read, 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 you know, understand stories and put yourself out there and do it. One, one challenge is that, you know, because the world is big and there's a lot of people, you know, you do yourself a real good thing by focusing on a quality education and really connecting with your classmates and your faculty because uh, and, and any alumni that you have the chance to to get to know in that process and you don't have to be at a great fancy school it could be at any place that offers a program and we like to we always support uh, theatrical education because it, it, it does it, it isn't so much focused on the camera but it's focused on storytelling mm -hmm. scripts what does a director do to create a, help a, a performer create a performance? What is blocking? How do you stage a scene? You know, all of those things are really critical to carry over into the recorded uh, entertainment. And, you know, there are lots of programs of varying quality in they call production design programs. Some are much more successful than others, but I think they work best if they are if you're into going that direction, which is a great way to meet directors, you know, in the medium, uh, but you should need to also get enough theatrical training at the same time so you can blend the two things. When we were in school, there really wasn't much of an option. There, you know, that I think there may have only been two or three uh, film quote film programs in the United States at the time, 
And uh, they certainly didn't offer any kind of a production design degree. Mm -hmm. So you get the whole everything, props, set decorating, period ornament, storytelling, everything in a good theatrical uh, education. Yes. That's true. Very true. I agree 100%. One last question. Friends aired for 10, se 10 seasons and Two and a Half Men for 12 seasons and Big Bang Theory for 12 seasons. And your production designs for Big Bang Theory and Friends have actually been turned into Lego sets, which is kind of blow my, blows my mind. I actually built the Friends Lego set with my daughter last week. So that was fun. But you guys have created so many spaces that are such a huge part of the fabric of our culture. Is there a show or a room that you would consider your favorite? Well, you know, you love all your children equally, but the <laughs> firstborn somehow has a special place in your heart. Uh, mm -hmm. You can't help that. Um, but it's, it's, it feels good to, to be, you know, part of the pop culture in that fashion. Uh, but it really all came from the script and the actors and the way they inhabited those characters and what we saw, where we thought those characters would live. And then the collaboration with the rest of the creative team, you know, brought it to life. So, you know, and, and part of it that makes those shows so special is the incredible friendships that came about during the you know, era of Friends. And, and certainly the cast of Big Bang and the company there were very close. Boy, there were a lot of tears shed the night, the last episodes of, of all of those shows. We also have a real soft spot for our heart in our heart for David Copperfield mm -hmm. and his and the, making the train car disappear. <laughs> and you know, we I have a tremendous soft spot in my heart for Star Search because that really you know catapulted myself into the variety music. Mm -hmm. world in a way well, that and I have to say I still will turn on a beauty pageant <laughs> and see who wins <laughs> after all those universes and USAs it's like hmm let me look and see what's going on here <laughs> I really like those national costumes <laughs> well John and Joe thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time it is so great to catch up with you two and just love chatting with you guys and keeping up with you guys online I look forward to seeing that your work, seeing your work that you come out with in the future. Oh, well, thank you very much. Thank this you. has been lots of fun. Thank you.